The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. As promised, here's, uh, we're going into flux balance analysis. The simplifications here are even greater than the ones that we have been making so far, but hopefully you will see some benefit. We're here uh, assuming that time constant metabolic reactions are very fast compared to cell growth. Cell growth, you know, we've seen the time constants are on the order of seconds or, or sometimes less, while growth might be on the order of hours. Even though we've seen interesting dynamics that can occur, those phase diagrams that we had in the ordinary differential equations, there are also many, it's very typical for a cell to be in fairly stable conditions. You know, you'll, there'll be a transition time and then they'll be stable again and that will be the steady state assumption. So we'll say there's no net accumulation of metabolites. Um, so even though there may be fluxes into and out of every metabolite, the net change is zero. And so that means this, this equation we've seen a few times, the change in x with respect to time is zero and that means the stoichiometric matrix times times the flux rate for that, uh, for all relevant reactions, you can think of it as a matrix representation, sum of all the inputs and outputs to that particular x position, minus the transport vector, which is uh, kept separately, um, is all zero. So what does that mean? That means the stoichiometric matrix times the internal fluxes is equal to transport across the membrane. And this is something, we'll, uh, I'll show you, we're going to do this in two steps. First, we're going to solve for that as if there was an exact uh, set of equations. Just the right number of equations, just the right number of unknowns so you can actually get a, a solve for the unknown fluxes. And then we'll work through it where it's actually underdetermined, but there are uh, inequality constraints. First, let's take the exact case uh, because it, the stoichiometry is known. That's the S. These are the zeros and ones, minus ones, twos, and so on. Uh, the uptake rates can be known in the sense that you can uh, re regulate the amount of uh, uh, input and, and output by the, the rate at which you remove uh, substrates and add them. And the metabolic fluxes are what you actually want. This is in contrast to the red blood cell or other ordinary difference equation cases we've been talking about, where the rate equations were known, but we were, but we were looking for concentrations. Here we're less concerned about concentrations and we want to learn what it might be the, the fluxes and later what might be the optimal fluxes. So in slide 42, let's say that we, um, as a, in a way, nomenclature, we focus on positive fluxes. If we want to go the opposite direction, we'll make that a, another uh, reverse flux, separate flux. So focusing on positive fluxes, we, know, we might know the flux level in certain reactions. That will help us have this, the, the equations uh, appropriately constrained. We can control uptake rates. We, have, we can have maximum values for uptake and internal fluxes. So here's an example. Let's walk through it. It's nice to have a couple of uh, one or two examples where we walk through in a, in a given class. So here we're going to have uh, an input molecule A 
It's transported across the membrane at a, at a rate R sub A. It then has a, essentially a decision fork here. Some fraction of the A is going to go through the X1 reaction and some fraction through the X2. The amount that goes through X1 and X2 is what we, is what we want to know. We are going to be given, uh, the, we're going to essentially clamp, uh, control the rate it goes across the membrane, RA. So that's going to be a given. You can see the constraint here, RA is going to be 3. And we're going to uh, also know the rate at which B is removed, and that's going to be kept constant at 1. And so we're going to want to solve for the two internal fluxes, X, and maybe this external uh, transport flux, RC. Now, we know there's going to be conservation of mass, so we can start setting up the flux balances in the upper uh, right-hand corner here of slide 43. Take a look at A. A is created, essentially, or the intracellular concentration of A is dependent uh, on R sub A, and then it splits into X1 and X2. So you know that R, R sub A minus X1 minus X2 is going to be zero. They're going to cancel out because A, by steady state assumption, is going to be constant. Even though the fluxes are not zero, uh, their sum is. And for B, a similar argument can be made. X1, which creates B, has to uh, sum with R sub B to zero. And the same thing for C, all the inputs have to equal the outputs. We have these two constraints where we've just said we're going to uh, clamp experimentally the amount of A going in and the amount of B coming out, and we want to solve for the other three kinetic parameters. So we have three equations and three unknowns. The unknowns are the two internal fluxes and the R sub C. And so another way of stating this equation, X1 plus X2 is equal to 3, X, because we know 3 going in has to equal X1 and X2 by flux balance. This is Essentially, the flux balance for A can be summarized as x1 plus x2 equals 3, or in matrix formation, it's the top uh, row here, 1, 1, 0. Right? It time, uh, is, uh, and the, the 3 is in the uh, transport uh, column vector at the far right-hand side. And similarly, you fill up the rest of the stoichiometric matrix with zeros and 1s and 2s and minus 1s, and the, the uh, transport the flux vectors are 3, 1, 0 um, for the constraints that we have. And then you solve for this. Three equations, three unknowns. You can solve it uh, by standard linear algebra tricks. Um, just uh, S times V equals B. So V is equal to the inverse matrix S times B. The matrix we had in the previous slide, which was first row was 1, 1, 0. Now, uh, when you do the inverse matrix, you get um, this upper right-hand portion, and you multiply it out, and you get a column vector solution, which is 1, 2, 4 for x1, x2, and rc, respectively. Now, they're plugged into this diagram, uh, and you can see that the whole masses balance out. Um, 3 is equal to 1 plus 2. Uh, 2 times c, 2 times 2 is equal to 4. Okay. So that's an example where it's heavily constrained, and so we can solve it exactly. However, very often, there are not enough measurements that have been made. We can't clamp all these fluxes, and there are many more internal fluxes than external. And so we have an underdetermined system. What is a good system biologist to do at this point? Well, the formal solution is it's no longer a point, a single point, a nice column vector of, of fluxes. It's now an entire feasible space. 
This is the kind of the cop-out answer, is that, okay, we have fewer equations than we have unknowns. That means the unknowns can occupy this entire multidimensional space, where however many fluxes you have, if you have hundreds of fluxes, you'll have hundreds of dimensions. If you have three fluxes, A, B, and C, uh, then you'll get this kind of um, uh, multidimensional polyhedral region, and anything inside that polyhedron is, uh, is an acceptable solution to the underdetermined set. Well, this is still progress in that you now know that, uh, that your solution is in there somewhere. But what if we wanted to find, add some more constraints, which are not now exact constraints anymore, but they're more uh, a, uh, uh, an optimization process. You might have this multidimensional polyhedron will be bounded by inequalities that it's less, that it's greater than zero, right, that it's positive, or it's less than some maximum flux. But then you want to find some optimal solution, and the optimization is a, is a sort of thing that, uh, that math has uh, been harnessed for in, a, in some other fields outside of ours, such as economics. When you're doing uh, planning of uh, you know, transport or planning of economic uh, investments and so forth, you want to know how much of your resources do you want to send through the X1 route and how much do you want to send to the X2 route. Very analogous to the, you know, the, the situation we had in the previous slide. And, uh, and that, that can be solved by linear programming, linear programming often finding economic uh, applications. So let's, but we need to ask, what is it we want to optimize? In economics, you want to optimize typically the bottom line. Uh, the, the, you want to lower costs and increase profits. Uh, the sort of what we have here is we have this uh, uh, very commonly encountered many metabolic systems where you have this convex polyhedral cone. Convex just means that there's uh, that there are no little. Uh, gaps in it, no little carved out regions. It's, it's all um, uh, uh, contained. That convexity allows you to have now take a linear objective function, say a multidimensional plane or a line, that, that you then move through this convex space. And since there are no gaps in it, you will eventually move off as you move this objective function. To, so the objective function gets better and better as it goes off through this feasible space. It eventually gets to a point uh, where it leaves the feasible space, and that is the maximum value, the, mo the optimal value for that objective function. We so we can use this feasible space combined with this objective function to find some optimum. Now, what is the objective function that we want to use? And if we were doing red blood cell, the objective function might be ATP or redox or both or delivery oxygen. And for a variety of other systems of importance to understanding health or biotechnology production or uh, other uh, medical and engineering goals, what, what we want to optimize is, the, is biomass, the, the ability of the cells to grow and produce uh, other cells or produce a particular subset of molecules in the cell. But let's deal mainly with a case of, of cells producing cells. And what this is is a sum over all the monomers, all the components of the cell, which represent the body of the cell. So as you move, as you transport small molecules in from the environment and incorporate it into the cell, that's a certainly, you can think of that as a sink. It's removing those molecules from circulation, from some solution. And this, uh, 
the sum over all the um, components, the ratios D of the monomers. You can think of there's a ratio, a fixed ratio of alanine to glycine to leucine to all the other components of the cell. And this is no known. You can, you can know this without knowing lots of other parts of the system we want to know, just by taking the cell and doing a chemical composition on it. Very simple experiment. There are tables of this known for a wide variety of cells. And it hardly changes depending on uh, much on the, how the cell is growing. What, what sources of carbon and nitrogen do not greatly affect the ratio of alanine, leucine, and glycine, because those are determined by what it takes to run the cell. So this is an important flux. You can think of this as a kind of a, a lumped flux, and this will be our objective function as well. So the objective function is Z, sometimes called, so Z is going to be equal to the flux of growth. So you can see that you have, again, the same equation again, stoichiometric matrix times the internal fluxes equal the uptake fluxes. Uh, and we've got this now, this uh, uh, constraint, this optimization function. So let's take a, just like we had a very simple uh, um, exact solution before, now let's take this very simple linear programming, or LP solution, where now it's underdetermined, so we can't get the exact solution, but we can ask what's the maximum for a particular objective function. The objective function here is not going to be the biomass production of the entire cell, it's going to be either maximizing the production of D or C. Now this is a slightly different diagram than we had before. We still have the rate of uptake of A on the left side of this kind of circular pseudo cell. A goes in, it makes the same binary decision of, or two-way decision of uh, X1 versus X2. It's not binary instance, it's quantitative. Uh, no, you know, real numbers determine how much X and how much X2. Um, and then if it takes the upper X1 root, then it uh, splits into B and C. If it takes the X2 root, it turns into B and D. In both cases, it produces a B molecule. So you can always already see a constraint coming up here, which is the RA is going to use RB. How, however you go from A to, to the outside again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce one molecule of B for every molecule of A. This is a perfect conservation reaction. And we've, we've, uh, we've said that we're only interested in positive fluxes, so you get this little triangle here of uh, X1 and X2 are greater than zero, and they're constrained in that, that uh, we've said that RA we're going to clamp so that it can't have more than uh, one on just arbitrary um, moles per liter per minute, say. Um, and so X, X1 plus X2 are constrained to be less than RA, so they're less than one as well. So you get this feasible space, which is this diagonally cross-hatched uh, region, and that's, that's, the exact, that's the exact solution. That's the set of all exact solutions. But now if you want to maximize a particular objective function Z, in this case, let's maximize the production of D, and we're not too concerned about anything else, um, then then you get this line. You can think of this as a hyperplane going, you know, a line basically going up through feasible space, starting at the bottom of the slide, going up and up and up until it just barely leaves the feasible space. And when it does, the last point it gets to is the maximum. And the maximum happens here to be uh, x1 equals 0, x2 equal to the max RD, maximum rate of production of the molecule we're interested in. If we had an objective function that went off the other axis would be x2, 0, and x1 equal to maximum rc. So you can see how this works. We create the feasible space, we de des design an objective function z, 
and uh, we run the z off the edge of this convex space. It's important that it be convex. Okay. So how applicable is this linear programming and so-called flux balance analysis? It works when the stoichiometry is well known. For E. coli, it's well known. For newly sequenced genomes, we can make connections to previous um, enzymatic reactions, and we can guess at what the stoichiometric matrix would be. Um, but in that case, the stoichiometry is less well known, and in which case you're going to have to really embrace your outliers when you get to the end. You're going to see all the, the errors and go back and figure out what was wrong with our stoichiometric matrix derived from our genome. Uh, you don't need much uh, experimental information to run this, but you, you need some, and we'll, we'll explore two of them, or, or at least to test how, it, how it's going to, to, to do data. So what are the precursors to cell growth that we are monitoring as a Z function? Okay, We want to come up with, define this growth function um, in terms of biomass. And there's, a, like I say, there's tables of, of uh, composition. We'll show one in a couple of slides. Um, but you can use this as a uh, part of the complete metabolic network. You can also use the balancization function. Uh, it can be described as some small number of biosynthetic precursors plus the energy and redox cofactors. Now, there are many ways of doing in silico cells. We show the red blood cells, ordinary addition equation. The kind of in silico cells here with optimization is fairly limited. The, the stoichiometric matrices have only been worked out for um, three, maybe five cells, three published. Um, yeast is on its way. Uh, and this is, this, these are mostly hand curated. There is definitely a need for getting a more automated uh, input from genomic models to these uh, flux analyses. Um, here's some references here we'll be talking in a moment. First, we'll talk about the wild type case for each of these cells under a variety of different growth conditions. Then we'll move on to mutants and ask whether mutants are we expect to be optimal or not. Um, and, and that will be called minimization of metabolic adjustment. Now, where do these stoichiometric matrices come from? Uh, parenthetically, the kinetic parameters that we're talking about are known for some of these complicated biochemical systems, not just for red blood cell. And where both the stoichiometric matrices and the kinetic parameters come from, of course, is a vast literature. It's an unwieldy literature in the sense it was done at a time before anybody thought that we were going to be that they were going to be responsible for getting this into uh, computer parsable databases. So it's mostly been re-entered um, by technicians into databases, and you'll end up with these diagrams, such as the central one, where each of these boxes contains a, is a node that contains a substrate, and the lines are, have enzyme commission numbers, this, you know, this dotted, you know, this uh, decimal, multiple decimal point uh, showing a hierarchical classification going from uh, left to right, getting more and more detailed in the enzymatic reaction. And uh, this is built up in, in a database, and from this you can, you can, uh, access such things as effects of uh, kinetic constants, effects of pH, um, uh, and, and other details. And also from this, you can get the stoichiometric uh, matrices in principle, because you, here you can see that you've got, say, uh, an, 
an input of ADP plus glucose 6-phosphate um, uh, going into this reaction or coming out depending on which direction you're going. And so those convert to zeros and ones in the matrix. That's the source of the stoichiometric matrix, which tells you what reactions are allowed, what two things can come together or one thing can be converted by the various enzymes that actually exist in cells. And you can toggle those on and off either by regulation or by evolutionary change or by genetic manipulation or mutagenesis. You can basically have a universal matrix and you toggle on only the ones that you think happen in your organism. That's how you get the stoichiometric matrix. How you get the optimization function, the Z function, that tell, the, which is what, wh how you want to make those decisions, how much X1 and how much X2, this is uh, dependent on the biomass composition. And the biomass composition, uh, as we you know, said, we have uh, on the vertical axis here is the coefficient uh, in the growth reaction, uh, which ranges here over almost eight logs from the, from the lowest uh, co compositional fraction, which are some of these coenzymes. So just like enzymes, they're only needed in, in small amounts. Um, to these that are needed both for uh, major uh, participants in hundreds of reactions like ATP, some of which contribute heavily to biomass. So ATP also contributes to, you know, large biomass like ribosomal RNA. And then the various amino acids, which tend to be some of these, uh, many of these stars up at the higher levels like lysine, leucine, and the other uh, 18 amino acids. Okay, so this, the, these are... Uh, examples of the numbers that would go into the uh, optimization curve here, these red hyperplanes, um, would be that linear sum in the ratios in the previous slide. Now, we've already seen, we've already worked through an example where we slid one of these hyperplanes off the edge of a, in a two-dimensional model and got the optimum production of a particular substance, D. But now we're going to try to optimize this linear sum of all the um, metabolites that go into the body of the organism. And uh, just focus on the green feasible space. It's actually, some of it's hidden behind the yellow. But imagine this, this whole uh, convex polyhedron uh, of green, which is feasible space, FS, for wild type, WT. Um, and you can get an optimum. You assume that this optimum, whatever the conditions that you're looking at, has uh, is likely to be achieved because for millions uh, of years, this organism has been living through all the different growth scenarios, growth on glucose, uh, galactose, various nitrogen sources, and so forth. So no matter what reasonable set of conditions you throw at it, it's seen something like that before or some other combinations. And so it's optimal for it. And that's what that, that, that uh, top right red dot means, is that's the optimum for the wild type moving this hyperplane, which is the, growth, the sum of all the different growth components in the correct ratio. So if you're going to optimize all those decisions, X1s and X2s, so that you get the right ratios, so you don't get way too much, say, of some rare amino acid like tryptophan and not enough of the glycine, say, that's, or alanine that's most common. That's great for wild type under a variety of different growth conditions. But what if you throw a real uh, curveball and say, uh, not give it a condition, but, but give it a perturbation it, it, it really doesn't see very often, if at all, which would be to knock out a gene completely by deletion uh, or, or conceivably knock in a gene, add a gene that it hasn't seen 
before very often. Well, now you could say we're going to do the same optimization. We'll run the same red hyperplane through the new feasible. So the new feasible space is re reduced if it's a knockout, could be increased if it's a knock-in where you're adding a gene. But if in this reduced space, the, the, the original optimum is no longer accessible. And if you rerun the optimization running this plane off the edge, you'll find a new red dot in the yellow space, which is a knockout optimum. But that could take, after you do the knockout, it could take evolutionary times, or at least la long lab times, to allow all the other uh, genes to mutate and be selected so that they accommodate this new knockout. That, the wild type had plenty of time to do that, had millions of years. Um, the yellow feasible space for the knockout may not have had that. So you want to know what's its immediate response. And for its immediate response, you might imagine is, you know, showing here is an orthogonal, uh, you know, a closest distance. Think of this as a Euclidean distance uh, in this multidimensional space between the wild type optimum and the projection onto the feasible space of the mutant. Now that distance, the distance you should already start to be thinking that this is no longer linear pro programming. This may be quadratic because the distance is a quadratic function. Um, and we'll see, in particular, since there are certain pathologies where you really are forced to take, you can't just take a projection uh, because sometimes those projections could, uh, <coughs> can end up in a part of a space which is not feasible. It's not, this projection does not land on the yellow feasible space, FS, of the knockout. So what you need to do is nudge this purple uh, symbol up just to the nearest point of the feasible space, which is uh, minimizes the distance to the wild type optimum and still falls in the feasible space. Now, this is a quadratic programming um, algorithm. It's, it's really, you know, it's just the linear is very simple to think of as just moving this uh, plane off the edge of the convex space. We'll go up, quadratic programming is a bit more complicated, but I think you get the idea. You're minimizing that distance. Okay. Now, with any good modeling exercise, there should be some data lurking in the wings. Uh, many of the network models that we will do are getting more ambitious than the, even the massive amounts of data that are coming in. This, there are two types of data that might leap to mind as being appropriate for this. Uh, remember we said that what the organism has done is optimize the use of these networks uh, so that you can maximize growth. So the two sources of data that you'd want to test this with would be the flux state itself, because you're saying, you're predicting how much is going to be going in each flux direction, and the growth data. So it's, you're making predictions that you'll optimally use the, the fluxes in the network in order to maximize growth for various mutants and various different conditions of growth, different carbon and nitrogen sources. So here you have uh, uh, group in Zurich, which is among the very few groups that can actually measure the, uh, measure the internal fluxes uh, for metabolic pathways that begin with, say, isotopically labeled glucose and end in the various amino acids. You can measure these. Uh, we prepared ourselves for this a little bit in the last class where we talked about the isotopomers, where you can have different chemical compounds that, whose only difference, they have basically identical, identically chemically, but in different carbon positions, you have a carbon-13 in one place, 
carbon-12 and other, and the exact arrangement of carbon-12 and carbon-13s in this will determine the isotopomer. And if you have uh, uh, mixtures of carbon-12 and carbon-13 glucose in the upper left-hand corner of this uh, diagram that includes glycolysis and pentose phosphate and TCA cycle, um, this, this, this isotopically labeled glucose goes through here, and then you need a little bit of modeling that, you know, that we won't go into, uh, that, but that re does require a stoichiometric matrix, just like our optimization modeling does. But now, very independently of that, you need to ask how the isotopes of glucose would make their way into the amino acids, and then once you have that, then given the amino acid ratios by mass spec and NMR, you can go back and calculate what the fluxes must have been in here. Once you have those fluxes, then you can ask how close to optimal are they for the wild type under one condition, for the mutant under the same condition, for the wild type and mutant under different conditions. Okay, so this is the first class of data that we'll use, and it's the internal fluxes for wild type and mutants. Uh, look in the upper right-hand corner where, so you've got in the upper left-hand corner is the icon color-coded from the previous slide. The upper right-hand corner is the predictions for wild type using the linear programming or FBA model. You get predicted fluxes on the vertical axis and experimental fluxes on the horizontal axis. What you see here is a uh, good correlation coefficient of about 90 plus percent and, in and a, a probability that, that this would you know, not be random, that this is a, a positive linear correlation is uh, better than 10 to the minus 7th. Very unlikely that happened at random. Uh, you know, that you can focus in on the outliers like number 18 here, but overall it's a good, uh, I mean, and, and this can allow you to ask what experimental or model problems you might have. But let's ask, that's for wild type under, uh, you know, a common growth condition. Uh, what about mutant under the same growth condition? Same stoichiometric modeling, um, same measurements. Um, now the experimental fluxes versus predicted fluxes um, in the lower left-hand quadrant is almost completely random. There's no positive or negative correlation that's significant uh, as we might have expected for the mutant. Remember, it, it isn't optimal, so you don't expect linear, linear programming method, which produces the optimum, to be appropriate un unless we had allowed this to evolve in the laboratory for hundreds of generations, or a sufficient number, however many that is, to get all the other genes, or enough of the other genes, to adapt um, so that you get near an optimum. In any case, this one is random. If you now use the quadratic programming approach, the MoMA, or minimization of metabolic adjustment, now get the very exciting result that it now becomes statistically significant again. Uh, st uh, still a few outliers, uh, 17 and, and uh, 16 here in magenta, and these are things where you can now make very specific tests uh, because now you know which, is, which ones are most um, discrepant between the experimental and predicted fluxes, and you can go in and ask what part of that model or what part of that data collection might be uh, accounting for the um, poor fit. But ov overall, this starts to give one the impression that maybe um, uh, the mutants will not be optimal and that they can be s somewhat better served by uh, this, this quasi-non-optimal solution. 
And if you walk through various uh, different conditions <coughs> uh, with different knockouts, you can see multiple examples of this. So here in the upper left-hand quadrant of slide 59, um, where we have the carbon limitation condition um, on the far left, and then the, the comparison of the method for flux balance on wild type, um, here's that 0.9 correlation coefficient and good p-value, um, and then comparing MoMA and FBA. And again, the significance of switching from FBA to MoMA is uh, 3 times 10 to the minus 3, um, indicating that the quadratic programming is the more appropriate application here. And as you walk through this, you'll see uh, many good correlation coefficients and many improvements when you go to the quadratic or MoMA. Uh, not every case, but certainly many of them. Now, that's one class of tests, which is the internal fluxes. We, the the uh, idea is that you adjust the internal fluxes until they're optimal to produce growth. Well, how about measuring growth itself on a set of mutants? Again, these mutants you expect uh, will, will follow the, the uh, MoMA uh, prediction slightly better. And uh, so slide 60 is a particular way of measuring a large genome-wide set of mutants. This is not a trivial undertaking. We know how to measure a transcriptome set of RNAs. Well, on microarrays, maybe there's an analogous way to measure uh, whole genomes worth of mutants. Ideally, you would have a mutant, not just per, one per gene, one knockout where you, per gene, which is uh, maybe a, a very expensive handcrafted deletion, but you'd have a little targeted mutation in every domain that contributes to that gene function. Uh, mutations in the DNA regulatory elements, uh, various protein domains, um, RNA stability domains, and so on. Uh, not quite at that level of ideal, but getting close to it, it's transposon mutagenesis where you insert small uh, bits of DNA randomly throughout the genome. The modern uh, set of commonly used transposons are pretty random in their assertion site choice. And then you need a way of turning this collection of transposons into a readout of growth rates. Well, one way to do this is have a population of cells, each um, having their own distinctive transposon, and growing them as a mixture. And as, growing, and as they grow as a mixture, the ones that, that uh, grow better will dominate the population. And so their transposon hit, the junction between the transposon, the transposon is universal, it's present in every cell, um, but where it sits is unique to that cell, or nearly so. Um, so it sits in a, uh, the junction between transposon and genome is unique, and you want a way of assaying that. The way you assay that is you take the complete DNA from the entire cell mixture, and you want to say how much of each transposon exists. So you cut the entire DNA mixture with a restriction enzyme that cuts frequently, so-called four-cutter, cuts with, with about every 256 base pairs on average. And you ligate on this very special kind of linker, which is a linker which will not amplify with the corresponding primer until some other DNA synthesis has gone through. Because you see this little Y linker is not perfectly watson crick base pair. requires uh, DNA polymerase to make a complement. Complement then will bind the primer. That's a long way of saying 
that only in cases where where you have a primer in the transposon near one of these Y-linkers will you get amplification. Transposon alone you won't get it, Y-linker alone you won't get it. That's one step of enrichment. And the reason you have to enrich is if you just threw this whole thing on the microarray, you'd get everything lighting up because every genome has every piece of the genome in it. Uh, and the transposons are present in trace amounts. So you need to amplify the junction fragment by first this trick, followed by a T7 promoter. This is a phage promoter, very commonly used, very clean uh, RNA polymerase background. That's been incorporated into the, any transposon, your favorite transposon. So now you have two steps. First, the, this uh, ligation-mediated PCR, and second, the T7 in vitro transcription to make RNA. Now you've basically reduced this to a problem similar to transcriptome uh, microarrays that we've done before. Now the RNAs are surrogates for the amount of each strain. We're not measuring RNA. We're, we've made an RNA that represents the transposon junction fragment and hence allows you to quantitate the amount of that particular mutant in a population. As that mutant goes up or down in a population, so does uh, the RNA from this assay. So you might ask at this point, well, this is this is great, but I don't trust it, just like you, some people might not have trusted mass spectrometry as being reproducible enough to be quantitative. So the way that you determine whether something is sufficiently reproducible to be quantitative, one way to do it, is to do two independent selection experiments. Um, evolu evolutionists might, might say, oh, if we re-ran evolution all over again, we would not get the same set of organisms we have on Earth today. That may be true, but that's because there are all sorts of bottlenecks and historical events. Uh, in this uh, case, we have uh, uh, we've specifically tried to make it reproducible by avoiding bottlenecks, by having every mutation, every transposon type represented by a thousand different independent events. Uh, as, well, a thousand copies of every uh, transposon hit. So you keep the population size large, and so it becomes more reproducible. And this is, and the way you me measure the reproducibility is you do the two selection experiments, the two uh, independent, um, ideally independent sets of transposons subjected to exactly the same selection procedure, and you can see a very gratifying uh, curve here with uh, an, an R-squared regression um, measure uh, in excess of 98% and the kind of scatter that you would be pleased to get in an RNA microarray experiment. So this is reproducible and therefore quant uh, capable of producing quantitative data. Well now let's go back and compare it to the two different methods of modeling the, the flux optimization. There's the FBA or linear programming which assumes that the mutant is immediately optimal and then there's the MoMA or minimization of me metabolic adjustment, which doesn't assume op immediate optimality, but assumes that it's close to um, wild-type optimal. So starting at the top, <coughs> the linear flux balance, you can classify the predictions of the model. You can, for each gene, and then here we have uh, over, uh, you know, almost 400, uh, almost 500 different genes uh, mutated, and you first you run through the silico predictions, you can classify them as being essential for a particular growth condition. They aren't necessarily essential for every growth condition, but the 
growth conditions here, it's essential or non-essential or something in between. We'll just focus on the extremes of essential and non-essential. And then, then the experiment can be classified as to whether there's uh, significant negative selection or no noticeable selection under particular growth conditions. And so you expect the ones that be essential under these growth conditions to be heavily negative selectively. And you have 80 examples of that out of 142 predicted. However, you wouldn't expect any to be uh, missing in selection since they're essential. So the 62 should be a zero by the 62. This is an example of where we're going to try to explain or use this as a way of generating interesting hypotheses about the exceptions, our outliers. Similarly, the non-essential genes should have no selection. This is 180 in the lower right-hand part of the upper um, FBA. But the 119 should be zero. Okay, so one, ex so the first pass explanation is, okay, we do that, that uh, these weren't going to be optimal right away. So let's uh, use the other model, the, the uh, suboptimal, nearly optimal model, MoMA, and see how well it does. Well, on the far right-hand side of slide 62, you see the chi-square p-values, how well the, the predictions of, agree with the uh, observations. And it is significant for the, the uh, linear programming. It's 10 to the, uh, 4 times 10 to the minus 3, barely significant. And the MoMA is much more significant, 10 to the minus 5. It has improved some of those uh, uh, upper right 66 and lower left 108. Those should still be, those should still be zero, and they're not. And the extent that they're, they devi deviate from the ideal expectation means that either the data are somehow the way we're collecting the data, not the way we expected it, or that the um, uh, model, more likely the model, has some problems in it. And examples of problems um, for those two classes the es predicted essential genes, which show no, which, uh, show no selection, might be examples of redundancies that we failed to model when we put together the stoichiometric matrix. The stoichiometric matrix, we take every known biochemical reaction. We might take uh, convincing homologs, a sequence hom homology level, and say those might be examples of redundancy. And we might take analogous or parallel routes that are known, documented biochemically, where you can get to the same point by a series of possibly non-sequence -homo non homologous enzymatic steps. So those are novel redundancies. This is an example of potential discovery um, and, and can be pursued in a very directed way because these are 66 very specific predictions. The 108 non-essential uh, gene knockouts, which nevertheless show negative selection, could be examples of position effects where a mutation in one gene affects uh, other genes that are close along the DNA, position meaning along the DNA. Uh, an, an example of this is that, a, that a, um, a variety of mutations in a gene which is upstream from another gene in an operon have polar effects on downstream genes um, due to the coupling of transcription and translation. You can have, all, you can have other kinds of position effects as well. These are, two, these are examples of possibly many explanations and discoveries that can contribute to the wonderful nature of, uh, you know, it's a win-win situation. Either you get great correlation or you get great exceptions and discoveries or both. Okay. Now, when we talked about redundancy as one of the possible explanations in the previous slide, that brings up really important uh, conceptual 
component of the post-genomic, functional genomic world, which is that uh, what do we do about multiple homologous domains? When you go through and you sequence genomes, you find paralogs. You find uh, either whole genes or pieces of genes which have high sequence homology, uh, which we talked about at the beginning of the, of the course. And here's examples of three protein coding regions that encode enzymes involved in the biosynthesis of amino, of amino acids. So you can imagine that when you grow the cells on minimal media, um, that you are not providing the amino acids, so the cell has to make the amino acids. If it's, if it's got a mutation, a transposon hit in one of these genes that's key in the biosynthesis of lysine, threonine, or methionine, then you might expect that it won't grow well. It'll be a selective disadvantage in minimal media, unless one of the other genes covers for it. Uh, it's possible these green, so these, these have three, three, two or three domains here, color-coded, so the green domain uh, is shared by uh, these three biosynthetic proteins that are otherwise very different in their uh, metabolic um, contributions. And you might imagine that some of these green domains might cover for others when one of them is mutated. One of them, however, the one in lyse C, when it's got a, a transposon hit in that domain, uh, the replication rate, the selective disadvantage in minimal media is severe. It's a fact, it's an order of magnitude, while the others are more subtle. It could be that the lyse C covers for the other two because it's uh, made in large amounts and is very active, um, but the other two can't cover for the lyse C. Or there's a variety of other possible explanations for this observation. Um, the point is that this generates hypotheses that allow us to follow up on the the flux balance or MoMA uh, type of modeling. And I think it's what, the reason I spent so much time on it is I think the concept of optimization is something that's important both in the sense that we're in engineering, as engineers, we're optimizing uh, living systems, and also as students of, of evolutionary systems where uh, to understand what, how those, what those systems are optimized to do, uh, we need to uh, look at um, from this perspective. So this is just where we've, what we've covered today. We've covered both continuous and discrete uh, ways of modeling molecular systems, and uh, in particular, the red blood cell and the copy number control as a way of, of dealing with metabolism and biopolymer synthesis separately, and the flux balance has brought these together and brought in the notion of optimization. Okay, so until next time, thank you.